This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, where we always give you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa. And unfortunately, our shortwave transmitters are currently down at the moment. But we'll keep you posted when the situation has been rectified and they're up and running. But in the meantime, you can find us online on www.channelafrica.co.za as well as on Channel 802 on the DSTV Audio Bouquet. My name is Samora Mangesi and with me in studio, I've got three lovely ladies, Jualani Tulo, uh, Amanda Machaka, as well as Musibudi Mako. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. The African Parliamentarians Network Against Corruption calls on the DRC authorities to punish all senators and MPs involved in corruption during last March uh, senatorial elections. Gambia's parliament approves the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement, becoming the 22nd nation to do so. And Economics, Africa's largest operator of the telecommunications equipment, plans to add additional towers in the Middle East and Southeast Asia. And lastly, in sport, there is still no trace of five Eritrean athletes who disappeared ahead of the World Cross-Country Championships in Denmark. But first, let's cross on over to the news desk and find out what is happening in the latest bulletin. Here is Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Samora. Good evening. South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission remains mum on the status of candidates against whom objections were raised and whether they will be removed from political party lists. The IEC has received objections to 53 candidates affecting nine political parties contesting the polls on the 8th of May. Tuesday was the cutoff date for objections. The ruling ANC has the highest number of affected candidates. IEC Chairperson Glenn Mashinini told the Cape Town Press Club that objections include allegations of corruption against candidates, racism and of improper conduct. He says the objections will be resolved by Monday. Everybody that is in in nomination is still in the list. But what one can say is that it's very clearly outlined whether the objection would be upheld or not uh, when we go into our, our constitution as well as our electoral act. It spells out very clearly uh, the, the, the basis upon which an objection can be made. Uh, so your guess is as good as mine. Nigeria's main opposition party has retained control of the key oil-producing state of Rivers, according to official results from a vote marked by violence and delay. Incumbent Governor Nisom Wike from the People's Democratic Party was re-elected for a second term after winning 886,264 votes. His nearest rival, Pomambo Awara of the African Alliance Congress, polled 173,850. Votes. Awara, a relative unknown, was backed by President Muhammadu Buhari's ruling All Progressive Congress, which was unable to fill candidates due to a court ruling. A preliminary report into the crash of an Ethiopian Airlines plane last month says the aircraft nosedived several times before it crashed. Pilots repeatedly followed procedures recommended by Boeing before the crash, according to the first official report into the disaster. Transport Minister Degmawid Morgus says despite their efforts, pilots were not able to control the aircraft. Flight ET-302 crashed after takeoff from Addis Ababa, killing 157 people. It was the second crash of a Boeing 737 MAX aircraft in five months. Last October, Lion Air Flight JT-610 crashed into the sea near Indonesia, killing all 189 people on board. The Prime Minister of Belgium, Charles Michel, has apologized on behalf of the state for the kidnapping of thousands of children born to mixed-race couples during the country's colonial rule of Burundi, Congo and Rwanda. The BBC's Mary Hepper reports. 
During the colonial period, children born to Belgian settlers and local women were forcibly taken to Belgium and fostered by Catholic orders and other institutions. About 20,000 children are believed to have been affected. Most fathers refused to acknowledge paternity of their children. Some never received Belgian nationality and remained stateless. Two years ago, the Catholic Church apologised for its role in the scandal. An estimated 10 to 15 million Africans were killed during its rule of Belgian Congo. And finally, Australia has passed controversial new laws which could see social media executives jailed for hosting violent videos on their platforms. The legislation follows last month's mosque shooting in New Zealand in which 50 people were killed. The suspect, 28-year-old Australian Brenton Tarrant, will be appearing in court tomorrow on 50 murder charges and 39 attempted murder charges. The BBC's Phil Messer reports. Australia's new law aims to penalise social media companies that don't quickly take down videos showing acts of terrorism, murders, rape or kidnap. Internet service providers and hosting services will have committed a crime if they fail to remove violent material expeditiously. Offenders could be fined up to 10% of their annual turnover and executives jailed for up to three years. Critics say the legislation is flawed, vague and ignores the complexities of monitoring the vast amount of content uploaded to the internet every second. For Channel Africa News, I'm Amanda Machaka. The African Parliamentarians Network Against Corruption has called on the Democratic Republic of Congo's authorities to make sure they punish all senators and members of parliament involved in corruption during last, March, last March's uh, senatorial elections. The call follows the country's president, Felix Chisikedi's decision to allow the opening of the new Senate only a few days after he suspended the ceremony due to corruption allegations. Meanwhile, the Congolese League Against Corruption believes this will have a negative impact on, anti- on anti-corruption efforts. Jean-Noel Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. Senatorial elections held last March here in the Democratic Republic of Congo were described by many as seriously corrupted since a provincial MP would be given a lot of US dollars bribe to cast his vote for a candidate according to allegations. Former President Joseph Kabila's Command Front for the Congo got 91 elected senators out of 100, while the current President Felix Tshisekedi's coalition capable Le Changement got only three and indeed his own political party, the Union for Democracy and Social Progress, didn't get any. Observers described the election as an open corruption field. President Tshisekedi then decided to suspend the new Senate opening and instructed the prosecutor of the Republic to investigate for more light. But only a few days after, the office of Mr. President announced another decision allowing the Senate opening. President Tshisekedi's new decision came before the investigations to be completed and that's the reason why the African Parliamentarians Network Against Corruption called on these countries' authorities to make sure they punish all senators and provincial MPs who have been involved in corruption. Jean-Pierre Passizapampa is the network president. Those who will be found guilty must be seriously punished in order to prevent such scandals to be done in the future. We have to stop this impunity. Meanwhile, a transparency organization fighting corruption here in the Democratic Republic of Congo has expressed big worries about the situation in this country. The Congolese League Against Corruption believes the opening of the new Senate will have a negative impact on anti-corruption efforts declared by President Chisekedi himself. Ernest Mpararo is the Executive Secretary of the Congolese League Against Corruption. In the process to elect the member of the Senate, there has been a lot of scandal, of bribery. Some uh, member of provincial parliament asked some money in order to vote member of senate. This is a very, very negative issues all of the institution which represents the citizen. And we think that uh, the installation of this institution will have a negative impact 
on the anti-corruption effort declared by the President of the Republic. President Felix Tshisekedi's decision to allow the new Senate opening followed a preliminary report from the Office of the Prosecutor of the Republic, but this was not enough according to the Congolese League Against Corruption. The League's Executive Secretary Ernest Mpararo told Channel Africa his organization is now busy advocating for the prosecutor's office to carry on with the investigation for all those involved in such a bribery scandal to be really taken to court. There was a lot of investigation in the prosecutor's office, but I think the prosecutor's office should continue with the investigation in order to send in the court all of the candidates who has been implicated in bribery scandal. And this is the issues we are advocating now in order to ask the prosecutor office to continue with the investigation and transfer all of the people who has been implicated in the bribery scandal to the court. As you know, the last regime was a regime who interfered a lot of in the investigation case on judiciary issues. But the change we have and the new authority we have now show us some willing, but it's not enough. We want to see them on action. We'll follow up and we'll see the new authorities on the action, not on theory. We must continue to ask Congolese people to push in order to bring those who are implicated in corruption, in bribery scandal, in court. This is the way we can reduce corruption in DRC. The Democratic Republic of Congo's constitution allows the new Senate to open 15 days after senators have been elected. The opening ceremony was supposed to take place last Monday, but this hasn't been done up to now due to logistic-related challenges, according to some senators. Jean-Noël Bamoise for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Gambia's parliament has approved the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement, becoming the 22nd nation to do so and effectively meaning the minimum threshold for the agreement to come into force. The AFCFTA, which uh, was enacted last year, seeks to create the largest trade zone in the world, increase intra-African trade by 52% by the year 2022 and remove tariffs on 90% of goods. But skeptics have pointed uh, to the impending challenges of uniting countries with the greatest level of income disparity between them under the umbrella of one trade bloc. Nigeria, Africa's largest economy, has not reached a decision on its participation in the agreement. According to Jacques Nell, chief economist at the economic uh, research firm NKC, uh, Africa Economics, Although Gambia's signature is an important step towards the implementation of the agreement, Africans should not hold their breath. This is a very important step. Uh, This step was critical for the initiative to go forward. But I do think it's important to note that this is just another step. And an ambitious project like this to have a product or free trade across the entire continent, um, it's going to take a while and there's going to be a lot of steps needed to make it to where we actually see some tangible progress. But how much longer do you think we still have to wait for this agreement to be fully implemented? That's a very difficult question. These trade agreements or negotiations are, are notoriously unpredictable for how long they take. Uh, even, for example, closer to home, if we look at the East African community, uh, which is considered at the moment the most successful trade bloc, um, even there, now and then we see tensions rise up again, um, disagreements over certain aspects of trade. Uh, so to get an entire continent to agree on certain aspects, not to mention putting these aspects forward to domestically for each country, uh, this should be a very long process. Now, once in place, uh, this agreement will cover a market of uh, 1.2 billion people and a combined gross domestic product of uh, 2.5 trillion US dollars. How are ordinary Africans going to benefit out of this junk? Will uh, this agreement generate employment op- opportunities for young people, for instance? Yes, the idea by an agreement is to support the development of domestic industries on the continent by opening up different markets. Say for a small country like Swaziland or Lesotho, you're opening up a population of over a billion for potential products 
produced in those smaller countries. So the idea is that the continent becomes less dependent on external or growth coming from beyond the continent and more generating growth on the continent by taking advantage of the growing population, you know, rising incomes, everything you listen to when you talk about foreign investors and how excited they get about investing in Africa. The idea is that Africans can now take advantage of this and invest in itself and then grow, grow economically, which would then trickle down to the average African. Africa's largest economy, Nigeria, along with Benin and Eritrea, are yet to sign this agreement. Jaka are only 15 out of the 22 nations that have ratified this agreement have also submitted their ratification documents at the AU headquarters in Addis Ababa. Will Nigeria's reluctance to sign this agreement hobble its implementation? Do you think? Yes, I think it is a problem that uh, the continent's biggest economy and biggest population isn't on board yet. Uh, this would be arguably the, the most uh, attractive market to tap for other African countries. But you have to understand that Nigeria is a very undis- un- undiversified economy. So the Nigerian government scared that by agreeing to this, um, it's going to hamper its diversification efforts because there's going to be more competition on the continent. And so, yes, it's a big problem that they aren't on board. We understand why they aren't on board, but the process can go on without them. That was Jacques Nell, Chief Economist at NKC African Economics, economic research firm in South Africa, talking to Kumbelo Munzelele. The time is now 17.16 Central African time. You are still listening to Africa Digest with myself, Samora Mangesi. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Today, the 4th of April, the world uh, marks International Day for Mines Awareness. James Shimanula focuses on South Sudan, where landmines have killed more than 5,000 people over the past five years. As the world marks International Day for Mine Awareness, more than 14 million people of South Sudan are aware that their country is full of landmines. More than eight years after it attained independence, from its northern neighbor, Sudan. Richard Bolter, Ordinance Officer at the Yuba Office of the United Nations Mine Action Service in Short Unimas, provides figures of people that have been killed by landmines in various parts of South Sudan over the past five years. The number now is 5,000 and... 35 people killed, but the number will grow. The people that Richard Bolter says have been killed by landmines live in eastern Equatorial region, southwest of South Sudan's capital, Yuba, and in the oil-rich northern region of Unity, where landmines reportedly planted by government troops and Riekmachar's rebel fighters have not been removed. Tim Ladner, landmine program officer at the UN Mine Action Office in Yuba, sheds light on the danger posed by landmines. Fighting leaves unexploded ordnance, it leaves abandoned ordnance, it leaves lots and lots of items that can be picked up by kids, that can be picked up by grown-ups, that cause damage to them, will cause serious injury and death. As Ladna made the remarks, fighting was taking place in Yei River State, southwest of Juba. The fighting pits government troops and rebels that refused to sign the new peace agreement. Ladna is worried by the fighting. We cannot operate safely in an environment where there is ongoing conflict. So we are working at the moment in this country, but there are so many areas that we can't get to. There are so many areas that are being 
contaminated further and further, so increasing the volume of contamination in this country. As has been said at the beginning, Unity State is one of the regions where landmines remain on the ground. Francis Kabui is program coordinator for Hope of Grace and Strength, a non-governmental organization. Kambui has created a program of awareness on the danger of landmines in Unity State. Our program mainly targets school children because there's a group of people who happens to be taking risks because they are not aware. Martin Guy, a teacher in Unity State, says a study on the danger posed by landmines has been programmed in South Sudan's school curriculum. Jurkuch Baranch Jurkuch, head of South Sudan National Mine Action Authority, discloses areas that are littered with thousands of landmines in Africa's newest nation. The most contaminated areas of South Sudan are in Equatoria because the theater of the war was in Equatoria. We have the contamination in terms of what we call unexploded ordnance. Equatoria, that head of South Sudan National Mine Action Authority, Jurkuch Barachi Jurkuch, is referring to, is divided into three regions, eastern, western, and southern. As Jurkuch has rightly said, during the civil war that preceded independence of South Sudan, equatorial regions were the epicenter, or to quote him, theater of the war. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. As today marks the International Day for Mines Awareness, it is estimated that over 100 million legacy landmines still exist around the world. Wow. Among the worst affected countries are Afghanistan, Angola and Zimbabwe. We talked to the Southern Africa Demining Development Trust about the state of demining in Southern Africa and what the organization is doing for the victims and survivors of landmine explosions. Managing Director at the Trust, Trekos Mutodzaniswa, explains. Our recent strategy, strategy in our country about the cyclone. We are really concerned about the, the minefields. We are even going to the mine nation center to see if it's like well, the, the area which, which, which the, the area is cleared or not. If it wasn't cleared, then it, it, it could be a danger. Then uh, what we are looking for is that we like, will mobilize something like to go there to the area if there are some mines being taken by, by the rain. So you need to go there and do awareness there. Talk to us about the general uh, situation of demining in Southern Africa at the moment. Uh, and when we particularly look at countries such as Mozambique and Angola, you know, we, we know that uh, Angola, a lot more of its land is still com- contaminated and that it seems to be lagging behind in, 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 in terms of um, meeting its target of becoming a landmine-free uh, country by 2025. So just kindly give us a sense of what the situation in terms of demining in southern Africa at the moment is. So I can start from, from Mozambique. Uh, I've been working in Mozambique uh, since uh, 1998. And I think that those areas, with Zabu those areas, I think there are no more landmines in Mozambique. They are clear. But we are, I'm so much worried about Zimbabwe. So many years, we have not been getting uh, funding from from outside, rather yeah, than like Mozambique. The, the best part of it is like we Zimbabwe, we the ones we are clearing in Mozambique. Else we have some more 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 mines in this southern Africa. So we didn't have the, the funding. So we are looking for other uh, companies again to come to Zimbabwe and do the mining issues. I think Angola is much better. I have been there since the next, uh, the last, I was in Angola in 2010. It, it was, it was, it was better. There are a few mines in Angola that I'm, I'm worried about Zimbabwe mines. The mines were laid in 1976, but up to now, like, we don't country to help. I don't know. That's not the problem. Talk to us about the general effects of, of landmines, of course, on citizens, but also the work that your institution, the Southern Africa Demining uh, Development Trust, really does. 
uh, these days we are, we are not we are not really involved in the mining. What we want we wanted to do is like victim assistance. We want to do victim assistance and also mine our awareness in the country. So so many people have been injured and there was no compensation and no help like from the from the So many of them like they lost their like houses and so many people were injured and some of them some of them dead. So like they don't have anything to do. So uh, our first project is like we're gonna do some houses and do some projects with those people who are always in India. And that was Tricos Mutodzaniswa, managing director at the Southern Africa Demining Development Trust, talking to Humutso Mupulani. The civil war in Yemen is now in its fifth year. Medical services in the country are on the brink of collapse and the UN says a child under five dies every 10 minutes from preventable causes. Many sick children are trapped in the capital Sana by um, war and by a Saudi ban on civil flight, civilian flights. During a recent trip to Yemen, our international correspondent Orla Gurin met a little girl called Yusra who was very ill with eye cancer. Following their meeting, various organizations worked to get Yusra out of Yemen and thanks to them, excuse me, she's now being treated in the Jordanian capital Amman. Orla caught up with her uh, a few days ago. We're driving through Amman on the way to see a little girl called Yusra. Now, the last time I saw her, it was a very different situation. She was in Sana'a in Yemen, trapped in a war zone. Yusra was desperately ill. Her mum was extremely worried. She was trying to find a way to get her daughter out of the country for medical treatment. Well, after our story was broadcast, that happened. And we've come here now to Amman to see how Yusra is doing. We've arrived now in the small apartment where the family is staying while Yusra is having treatment. It's quite simple. There are two beds here. There's a cot with red bars and a little fridge in the corner. And Yusra is right in front of me. She's got a large bandage covering her left eye. That eye had to be removed. It couldn't be saved. But she's smiling. She's wearing little gold earrings and pink sandals with bows. Her mum, Hayat, is here with her and her baby brother, Montasser. Hayat was so worried the last time we met in Sanaa. She said she would give her own eye to save Yusra's sight. Hayat, tell me, how has she been getting on here? How is the treatment going? Thanks God, she is uh, very comfortable now. She plays, she eats. They removed all the, the cancerous cells and uh, they told me that it will not spread. Uh, she's uh, cured. The other eye is good. It will not uh, be infected with anything. And uh, thanks God, she is now better. She, I can, I'm happy to see her uh, talk, eat. She's much better. Yusra has come in today for a checkup at the King Hussein Cancer Centre in the middle of Amman. And she's walking through the corridors of this big, shiny, modern building, clutching her mum's skirts. And you can't help but think how overwhelming all of this must be for a little girl from Yemen. In the consulting room, Yusra's surgeon, Dr. Yakub Yusuf, examines her and carefully checks her wound. Something she doesn't find easy. You've just seen her now today. How's she doing? She came four or five months before now. I could save her better. Unfortunately, because of the war, they didn't, couldn't come at that time. So we lost the chance to save her eye. It's good news that we could save her life, but I wish if I could treat her earlier to save her eye as well. And, and when you see her now today, how, how do you feel seeing her? Actually, I, I feel proud that I could afford something helpful for her to save the life of this kid. We as doctors, it is our mission in our life to save lives. And when you save life of a kid like this, who is coming from this poor country with this war, you feel you did something good for her.
In a few months, the surgeons here hope to fit Yusra with an artificial eye. She has a complex medical condition and she'll have to be monitored carefully for the rest of her life. But the doctors are hopeful that this young child, who has gone through so much already, now has a future. Abari, etise, mache, mingabo, baoni, kedu, mbote, ndemne, bonsoir. Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Time has just gone 17.30 Central African time. Amanda Machaka is standing by at the news desk to give us our uh, 5.30 p.m. news headlines. Thank you, Samora. Good evening. South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission remains mum on the status of candidates against whom objections were raised and whether they will be removed from political party lists. A preliminary report into the crash of an Ethiopian Airlines plane last month says the aircraft nosedived several times before it crashed. Pilots repeatedly followed procedures recommended by Boeing before the crash, according to the first official report into the disaster. And the Prime Minister of Belgium, Charles Michel, has apologized on behalf of the state for the kidnapping of thousands of children born to mixed-race couples during the country's colonial rule of Burundi, Congo and Rwanda. Those were news headlines. All right, the time is now 17.31 Central African Time. And just a quick reminder that if you want to get in contact with us, you can do so by sending us an email, info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp to plus 2776-300-3327. You can also tweet us at Channel Africa 1. Now, one in four healthcare facilities around the world lacks... uh, basic water services impacting over 2 billion people. And this is the crux of a new report by the World Health Organization, otherwise known as the WHO, and the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF. The report released under the title WASH in Healthcare Facilities is the first comprehensive global assessment of water, sanitation and hygiene in healthcare facilities. To discuss this further, we are joined on the line by a representative from the World Health Organization and his name is Richard Johnston. Thank you very much for joining us, Mr. Johnston. I'm happy to be here. Give us a brief overview of how and why this report was put together. Well, um, this is uh, the, the largest review of WASH uh, services and healthcare facilities that's been done, and it's been years in the making. We, we needed to reach out to countries to find out what kind of data were available and ended up finding information from 125 countries. But even then, normally we could only find one or two surveys per country, so there's still uh, pretty thin data, but enough to tell a really shocking picture tell a shocking story that, uh, as you said, one in four healthcare facilities lack basic water services. And really, a healthcare facility without water is not a healthcare facility. You, you can't provide quality services without clean water and also sanitation, hygiene, and um, uh, you know, good resources. And what would you say were some of the key revelations of the report? Were they expected? Well, um, we did find that in many cases, healthcare facilities would have some kind of water supply or some sanitation facility, but they weren't fully functional. For instance, the water supply might not have water available at all times. Um, It might be intermittent water supply, or there might be toilets, but not toilets that uh, meet the needs of everyone in a healthcare facility, such as staff and patients or people with limited mobility. Um, I think hand hygiene was one of the big surprises because we found that globally only about um, three out of five healthcare facilities had hand washing materials at places where people receive care or at toilets. And 
really hand hygiene is, is the simplest yet most effective thing you can do to control the spread of disease in healthcare settings. Um, it's also something that's not terribly expensive to implement. It just takes, um, you know, will and, and dedication and good sound management. And was it clear if a lack of these services uh, in the healthcare facilities compromised infection prevention and control and, of course, quality care? Well, yes. Um, I mean, you can't really ensure a hygienic environment if you don't have good water. Um, we know that people who are in healthcare facilities shed more pathogens in their, in their excreta, in their feces. So without proper sanitation, the patients themselves, other patients, visitors, healthcare workers and surrounding communities are at risk. There's also a big link between uh, sanitation in healthcare facilities and antimicrobial resistance because many of these people are taking lots of antibiotics, so there's, there's opportunities for antimicrobial resistance to, to develop and be released into the environment where it can cause more diseases. And uh, what role does the availability of water, sanitation, and hygiene services in health facilities play in the achievement of sustainable development goals? Well, it contributes um, both to Sustainable Development Goal number six on water and sanitation and the Sustainable Development Goal number three on health. Um, for the water and sanitation goal, the, 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 the global aim is to have water and sanitation available everywhere for everyone. And that doesn't mean just in the household. It means in schools and healthcare facilities as well. But uh, if you look at SDG three on, on health, um, the first target is around reducing maternal mortality and the second is around reducing neonatal and infant mortality. And we know that the, the healthcare setting is particularly important for those two ones because when women come to a healthcare facility to deliver a baby, if it's not hygienic, there's a high risk that they, they can become infected. And sepsis is one of the leading causes of both uh, neonatal mortality and maternal mortality. So definitely wash and improved uh, infection prevention and control have a big role to play in those targets. And, and finally, uh, there's a target on universal health coverage, which is the flagship uh, program of World Health Organization. And there, there, you can't have universal health coverage without basic wash services in healthcare facilities. But Mr. Johnston, surely when a healthcare facility is being set up, part of the most important um, uh, structural and infrastructural part is making sure that there's water. Did uh, the report shed some light as to why these services are not available in many parts of the world? Well, I think in some cases um, the infrastructure is set up uh, at the time of construction, but perhaps the operation and maintenance isn't um, properly budgeted or planned for or the, the, um, the staff at the healthcare facility don't have the resources to keep things running as they should. But there are also cases, especially for smaller facilities, where they're, they're really just not designed with wash services in mind. I think, I think people kind of take it for granted that, of course, a healthcare facility is going to have these very basic um, uh, services, wash services, energy as well. But in many cases, uh, they simply don't. And there, there are resource constraints, especially for small rural facilities. Uh, but the, the health sector as a whole needs to take ownership of this and ensure that people are really able to access quality care, even even for um, primary health care facilities, even in rural areas. And what actions can governments take to improve the water, sanitation, and hygiene services in healthcare facilities? Well, there's a combination of short-term and long-term measures. Um, some some of the long-term measures, um, I mean, if there if there's really not um, you know, water connections or water supplies or wastewater treatment, there needs to be infrastructure development, and that can be costly and can take time. But there are a lot of things that can be done quickly with um, limited resources also. For instance, making sure that hand uh, hygiene facilities are available everywhere that patients receive care. This can be simple buckets uh, with taps and water and soap or alcohol-based hand rub, making sure those are available everywhere and that people know how to use them and are, are expected to use them. That's probably the, the quickest, most effective thing that can be done in the short term. Also, there can be um, short-term improvements to water. There can be um, chlorination of water supplies in healthcare facilities. If you have, say, an intermittent water supply, it could be contaminated and the, the healthcare center themselves can add some disinfectant to make sure that the water is safe to use. 
All right, Mr. Johnston, thank you very much for joining us on the line and letting us know about the situation with regards to water and sanitation in these healthcare facilities. And hopefully this is a situation that can be turned around. That's our hope, yes, and and that's what we hope that this report will serve to do, to shine a light on some of the problems so that uh, governments can, can improve the situation. All right, uh, that was Mr. Johnston, Mr. Johnston, a representative of the World Health Organization, talking to us on the line with regards to the uh, wash in healthcare facilities. But right now, the time is 17.40. Before we head on over to what is happening with regards to our money, let's talk about children and breakfast. The nutrition, health and wellness company, Nestle, says establishing breakfast habits to fight childhood malnutrition in South Africa is key. According to the latest South African National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, one in five children in the country does not eat breakfast despite statistics showing that this is one of the most important meals of the day. Now, Nestle says that uh, this number is of grave concern as it highlights the nutritional energy gap that exists as a result of skipping breakfast. More from uh, Katleho Maputa, senior brand manager at Nestle in South Africa. Breakfast is most definitely, you know, one of the most important meals of the day because it highlights the fact that, you know, with every human being, for you to have a great start to the day, you really need to have the correct nutrition to start off the day, to give you the right energy so that your brain functions, your motor skills are all in line, you know, with what you want to achieve for the rest of the day. So, yes, there's sufficient data out there that one can access that really tells you that, you know, breakfast, it's not just saying the most important meal of the day, but it's because of the need that the body requires in order for it to function properly throughout the course of the day. Now, with this being one of the most important meals of the day, do you think that breakfast is sometimes a luxury in many households in South Africa? I would say, yes, it might be a luxury, but I think saying that it's a luxury is quite relative. And I would like to kind of explain that, you know, because, you know, all of us wish to have a continental English breakfast with all the muffins and the bacon and the eggs and the cheese and the likes. But I believe that within an African context, and most specifically in the African context, it's about going back to the basis of what is really required, what can I afford, and what is nutritious, you know, not just for me, but for my children. You know, and speaking as a parent, you know, it's really important that I give my child, you know, the right nutrition, whether it be a bowl of porridge, whether it be a bowl of cereal, or even a slice of toast, you know, we need to get into that routine of ensuring that our children, our families are properly given the right nutrition. But at the same time, how do we do this when parents are struggling to make ends meet? Yes, you know, I mean, you are quite right in saying that, you know, we all know we've seen, you know, the unemployment rate in South Africa, you know, it's at an all-time high. Really, our people are struggling to make ends meet, you know, that we are so much cognizant of. But what's really important to understand is what is the basic nutritional requirements that I need. And I think it's more than actually affordability, not just about an affordability aspect, but I believe it's more of a knowledge gap that exists within our community. That breakfast doesn't necessarily mean you have to have this massive breakfast meal, you know. Just going back to the basics is critical, which I've mentioned before, which South Africans really need to get into groups with, understand the basic requirements, because in actual fact, you don't really need that much to get the right nutrition. What are children missing out on by missing a healthy breakfast? Yes, you know, that's a very important question that you've asked me, and because, you know, they're missing out on having the right levels of concentration at school, in class, you know, their brain functioning. You're not saying eating breakfast is going to help you, you know, to be an A-plus student. We are just saying it's just going to help with the concentration, you know, the levels of being alert, you know. Also, most importantly, when the kids are partaking in sports after school, you know, the stomach has already, you know, has been given the right nutrition from the start of the day. So it will help them also to perform in their sports activities until they get home as well when they receive the dinner, etc. So really fueling your champions or fueling your children in the beginning, you know, in the morning, and yourself as well, you know, as parents, you know, as adults, really provides you with the required energy to perform at your optimal level during the course of the day. Does missing breakfast have any long-term effects? Yes, it could lead to malnutrition, 
you know, it could lead to, you know, a um, lack of concentration thereof as well. Also, that lack of physical activity. And as well, you know, as we see, you know, with the stats with the World Health Organization, you know, they're saying you know, a lack of poor diet and a lack of physical activity, you know, are leading to non-communicable disease. This is another topic altogether, but I think going back to the basics, you know, we've really got to educate ourselves, get the knowledge, you know, that why should I eat the breakfast and what does it mean for me in the future, which I really like the question that you have posed on, because that's so critical, you know, as we're grooming new leaders of the future. How can- and that was Katlejo Maputa, Senior Brand Manager at Nestle in South Africa, talking to Elizabeth Lidija. The time is now 17.45. Let's cross on over to the Money Desk, where Tracy Boomgaard is standing by to let us know what is happening with our economy. Thank you. The Zimbabwean government says the current fuel shortage in the country is due to forex shortages. Energy and Power Development Minister Joram Gumbo has attempted to allay fears that fuel prices will go up next week. He added that the biggest problem was not about fuel, but more about the provision of forex. Gambia's parliament has approved the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement, becoming the 22nd nation to do so, and effectively meeting the minimum threshold for the agreement to come into force. The agreement, which was enacted last year, seeks to create the largest trade zone in the world, increase intra-African trade by 52% by the year 2022, and remove tariffs on 90% of goods. According to Jacques Nell, chief economist at the economic research firm NKC African Economics, although Gambia's signature is an important step towards the implementation of the agreement, Africans should not hold their breath. This is a very important step. Uh, This step was critical for the initiative to go forward, but I do think it's important to note that this is just another step. And an ambitious project like this to have a product or free trade across the entire continent Um, It's going to take a while and there's going to be a lot of steps needed to make it to where we actually see some tangible progress. These trade agreements or negotiations are are notoriously unpredictable for how long they take. Uh, Even, for example, closer to home, if we look at the East African community, uh, which is considered at the moment the most successful trade bloc, um, even there, now and then we see tensions rise up again, disagreements over certain aspects of trade. So to get an entire continent to agree on certain aspects, not to mention putting these aspects forward to domestically for each country, uh, this should be a very long process. Car manufacturer Toyota is to offer royalty-free access to its hybrid vehicle technology patents until 2030. It is part of a move to promote hybrid cars as a bridge to fully electric vehicles. It will grant licenses for nearly 24,000 patented technologies relating to motors, converters and batteries. The Toyota-designed Prusa was the world's first mass-produced hybrid car and the firm has sold 13 million hybrid cars since its introduction. The economies of Nigeria and West Africa in general continue to perform poorly. This is according to the African Development Bank and is due to a number of challenges which it says needs to be resolved urgently if Africa's economic growth is to keep pace with the rest of the world. Some of those challenges include unemployment and underemployment, political instability, growing external debt and migration, among many others. South Africa's Cape Town International Airport has embarked on a major upgrade project worth millions of dollars over the next five years. General Manager Dion Kluter says major projects include realigning the runway, refurbishing the domestic terminal and expanding the international terminal. Kluter says the project is expected to create a number of job opportunities. It's really bringing all of the parties closer to see what we're going to do, when we're going to do it and how we're going to do it. So very important, the runway project, although very significant, is one of the ones we'll deliver sooner than later. It's a two to three year project. The domestic arrivals terminal is also on a shorter period. It's about two to three years. International terminal is quite complex. We're doing phasing in different stages, somewhat longer. We're doing a four to five year project there. The U.S. dollar is trading at 358.65 Nigerian Naira, 10.43 Botswana Pula at 100 Kenyan Shilling and at 12.09 Zambian Kwacha. 
In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.85 Brazilian hail, 65.23 Russian ruble, 68.69 Indian rupee, 6.71 Chinese yuan, and at 14.19 South African rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 75 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,292 and platinum at $872 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $69.27 a barrel. For Channel African News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. And it has just gone 17.50 before we close off this hour of Africa Digest. Let's cross on over to the sports desk where Musa Budimokura is going to let us know a little bit more about what is happening in the world of sport. Good evening, sports fans. There's still no trace of the five-year train athletes who disappeared ahead of the World Championships in Denmark last weekend. Our correspondent, Geshom Nyati, reports. The saga for the disappearance of Eritrean athletes still continues. Three senior female runners and two junior men detached themselves from their coach, Dawiti Mebratu, and teammates at a hotel where they stayed. There is strong suspicion the athletes pre-planned their escape. They will either seek refugee status or stay as illegal immigrants. A Danish teacher who befriended the Eritrean team, giving them moral support, said Eritrean nationals living in Denmark must have kept the athletes undercover in the meantime. Another possibility is that the athletes could have found somebody who shipped them across to Sweden even if they did not have passports. On to football news, Nigeria's national women's football team has arrived in Spain as the African champions continue their preparations for the upcoming FIFA Women's World Cup tournament in France. A number of players left on Monday night while the rest of the delegation departed Nigeria on Tuesday. Channel Africa's Tony Obani reports. Having already taken in two matches at the China tournament in Menzu in January and four matches at the Cyprus Women's Cup in February, the Falcons will play two matches in Spain, including a high-profile class clash with the Canada women national team. They first play a first division club, UMF Salesforce, today before the potentially explosive encounter with the Canadians on Monday, 8 April. The matches will hold in the city of Musia. Zimbabwe Football Association is seeking to avert a total fallout with the Council of South Africa, um, Southern Africa Football Association after the association appealed for the postponement of the disciplinary hearing on Wednesday. Nazifa is facing charges of breaching the contract for hosting of this year's senior men's Kosafa tournament. The association is supposed to appear, or rather was supposed to appear, before the organization's disciplinary committee earlier today in Johannesburg, but the matter will now be determined on the 11th of April. April, Zimbabwe faces heavy sanctions for reneging on the undertaking to host the regional football competition. The hearing will be handled by Kosafa's independent judicial body and the outcome and the action will be handed down within 48 hours of the D.C. On to Olympic news, the 2020 Olympic Games men's tennis final in Tokyo will be played over three sets rather than five sets, ending the prospect of a marathon gold medal shootout. Back in Rio three years ago, Andy Murray needed four hours and four grueling sets to defeat Juan Martin Del Potro in defending his Olympic title. Now there were 14 breaks of serve while Murray ended the final in floods of tears. Now since 1996 the format for the men's singles event has been best of three sets in all rounds except the final but all matches at the 2020 games in Tokyo will now be played in a shorter format. Meanwhile the men and women's doubles tournaments will feature a first to 10 points tie break instead of a deciding third set. The same format has also been used for the mixed doubles.
And finally, Tennis News protesters Bola Dinaga says South Africa will be shooting themselves in the foot if they do not take Aidan Markram to the World Cup. The 24-year-old batsman ended as a top-run scorer when the Momentum One Day Cup concluded over the weekend, scoring over 500 runs in only five matches for the Titans. Now, Markram was named man of the match in the final with his sublime century helping the team um, re- um, defeat the Dolphins by 135 runs. And Captain Algo says the national selectors cannot afford to leave him out of the trip to England. For me, it's not a discussion. Just take the boy. He scored over 500 runs nearly in four games for the Titans. There's, there's no debating. Um, if he doesn't go, South Africa is shooting themselves in the foot of my opinion. The Zoe Sports News at the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. And that is how we wrap up the first hour of Africa Digest. Be sure to join us again a little bit later on in the evening from 1900 hours for more news from an African perspective from myself, Samora Magesi, producer Leander Maume, technical producer Tumelo Mukwena and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you so much for listening. For comments on the show, do send us an email, info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. You can also tweet us at Channel Africa One. Taking us to the top of the hour is Yagutumisa Bawo by Nsika featuring Lebu Sechobela. We'll see you later. Yeah, so
tikupereka moni kwa inu nonse amen